There's a story in the Bible that sounds like a fairy tale, but it's not. Nothing made up or fake about it at all. Everything in the story is true. And the great thing about the story and what makes it so exciting for us is this story sounds so similar to that dream we had as kids. I mean, didn't you ever wish when you were a kid that one day you could find this magic lamp and as soon as you touch the lamp, a genie appears and the genie says, your wish is my command. You ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And as a kid, you're thinking, wow, wouldn't that be great if that could actually happen? And if it actually did happen, what would you ask for? What would you want? Well, this is exactly what happened to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. Only what happened to Solomon was so much better because there's no genie, no magic lamp, but there's God. And one night, in the middle of the night, God appears to Solomon, and he basically says, Solomon, ask for whatever you want. You want wealth? You want a long life? You want freedom from your enemies? You tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. You choose. You make the request, and I'll grant it. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. So what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Now, I've got to be honest. When I was a little child sitting in Sunday school class, and we got to this point in the story, and I heard what Solomon asked for, I was so disappointed. To me, it was like a big letdown. You can have whatever you want, and you choose to ask for wisdom. Why would you ask for something like that? You know, it's kind of like the disappointment you felt on Christmas morning. Here's this beautifully wrapped present, and it's got your name on it, but you have no clue what's inside that box. But your friend who got that present for you, they're super excited. I mean, they can hardly wait for you to see what's inside that package. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is going to be something really special. So you untie the ribbon, you tear off the paper, you open up the box, and there inside is this olive-colored ceramic pickle dish. Your friend made it just for you. Doesn't go with anything. The house doesn't fit any of the decor. It's not something you need. It's certainly not something you want. This was not on your wish list for Christmas. But there's your friend jumping up and down with excitement. They're just so thrilled that they made this for you. So you try to be polite, and you crack a little smile, and you say, um, thank you. But in your head, you're thinking, this is hideous. This is the most hideous-looking pickle dish I've ever seen in my life. What in the world am I going to do with this? That's the kind of disappointment I felt when I first heard that story about Solomon. Solomon, you can have whatever you want, and it's God who's making the offer, and all you can think to ask for is wisdom? Come on! Couldn't you have asked for something bigger and better than that? Couldn't you have asked for something a little more exciting? Well, through the years, as I learned how to read the Bible for myself, and I would go back to study that text, I... I came to realize that really was the perfect request. When you understand what the Bible means by that word wisdom, that was the perfect thing to ask for. But then I noticed something else. There's more to that story. See, years ago, sitting in that children's Sunday school class, we only heard the first part of the story, God making the offer to Solomon and Solomon asking for wisdom. But there's so much more to the story than just that. You go to the latter part of 1 Kings chapter 3 and you get an opportunity to see Solomon and the first time he gets to use this gift of wisdom. And again, because of what happens, it kind of takes us by surprise. I mean, here's Solomon. He's got this great gift of wisdom. How does he, is he sitting down with some architect so they can design and build this fabulous palace? No. Is he meeting with some head of state from a far country and the two of them are going through these intense negotiations? Now we understand why he needs this kind of wisdom? No. No, the first time Solomon gets an opportunity to use this gift of wisdom uh, to show the world that he's got this special wisdom from God, he encounters two women who are fighting over a baby. Both women were living in the same house. Each one had just recently given birth to a child. And yet one night in the middle of the night, the one woman's child dies. So she goes and takes the other child. She steals the other baby, and now she claims that it's her own. 
So both women come to the court, and each one has their own story to tell, and both of the women are very passionate in the claims that they make. That baby is mine, and that other woman is lying. So who's the real mother? Is it mother number one or mother number two? It's a real dilemma. But there's something else you need to know about this story, 1 Kings chapter 3, something that might change about how you feel about this story. Who are these two women? What do these two mothers do for a living? The Bible tells us they are both prostitutes. Here are two ladies engaged in a very immoral occupation, and they are doing this in the land of Israel. That is outrageous. I mean, here are two ladies who never tried to do anything right in their past, and now they're expecting somebody else to do something right for them. Neither one is fit to be a mother. Neither one deserves to stand here in this court. Solomon should not be wasting his time hearing a case like this. Solomon should not be using this magnificent gift of the wisdom to help two prostitutes. No, these are evil women doing evil things. Let them reap what they have sown. That's how many of us would feel about that situation, but not God. God... In the eyes of the Lord, God saw this as the perfect setting, the perfect opportunity, as a way to show his people, here's what I am all about. And here's how my wisdom can make a difference for you. So you put yourself in that courtroom, 1 Kings chapter 3, and you watch what happens. Here is this prostitute who is about to lose her baby. Does she have any reason for hope? I mean, her past is against her, right? She has chosen a profession that she knew was wrong, but she chose to do it anyway. There's no excuse for her behavior. There's nothing good in her life to commend herself to Solomon, the king. What reason does she have to hope that he's even going to listen to her, believe her, or care enough to want to help her and her baby? Here's a reason for hope. She's not standing in Solomon's court. She is standing in God's courtroom. And God's courtroom is not like any other court in the world. God doesn't just help those who can help themselves. No, God shows kindness to sinners. And here's the proof. 1 Kings chapter 3. God really does care about this woman and her baby. And he wants to make sure that baby is returned to its rightful mother. So working through King Solomon and working through that divine wisdom that he's given to them, God comes to this woman's defense he goes to bat for her. He gives her justice, even when she didn't deserve it. Here was a lady who was dead in her trespasses and sin, but God raises her up to a brand new life, and he gives her and her baby a hope and a future. Now, here's the reason why I'm telling you this story. Today, we're looking at a passage of Scripture where we're going to hear the Apostle Paul praying for his friends in the city of Ephesus. And the main thing he prays for, in fact, he talks about this in, in verse 17. He says, I, I just keep asking for this day after day after day. I keep asking, I want you to know God. I want you to know what he's really like. Because when you understand who God is, who he really is, you'll never hesitate to pray. You'll never hesitate to draw near to him. Isn't it true? Many times we keep our distance from the Lord because we're convinced he wants to give judgment. And the truth is, he wants to show us mercy. We hesitate to pray. We hesitate to approach. We hesitate to talk to God because we're expecting God to, to tell us, hey, you made your bed, now lie in it. You don't deserve my help. When the truth is, God's eager to help. Even in the midst of troubles, even when that trouble's our own fault, even when we brought that trouble on ourselves, there's no one else in the universe like him. 
No one more eager and able to help. No one more eager and able to make a difference in our lives. And that's why Paul says every day, I keep praying about this. I want you to know God. I want you to know and appreciate what he has done for you. And I want you to know and appreciate what he can do for you. So look at this. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17. Apostle Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he's describing God. Back in the Old Testament, God would, God would describe himself as the God of Abraham or the God of Jacob, or sometimes he'd describe himself as the God of Israel. But now you come to the pages of the New Testament, and we see it's so much more than that. He's not just the God of one person, and he's not just the God of one nation. Now because of Jesus, he's the God who's available both to both Jew and Gentile. He's the God who's available to all. It's Jesus who's now given us access to the throne. It's Jesus who's made real this possibility that every one of us can enjoy a life and a relationship with God. But it's more than that. Because Jesus himself is God, it's Jesus who shows us what our God is really like. You know that old story. It's a true story because it happened at the St. Lawrence River up there in Canada. But you know this story. You've heard it. A man comes to that river in the middle of the winter and it's frozen with ice. And he needs to get to the other side. And yet there's no bridge to use. So how's he going to get across? Well, can he walk on the ice? How thick is the ice? Is it going to hold? He's not sure. So he gets down on his hands and knees. And he reaches out with the one hand. And he begins to press against the ice. And he's, well, it seems solid. It seems firm. Okay, I'll give it a try. And slowly and very carefully, he, he begins to inch his way out onto the river, crawling on all fours. He gets about 10 feet out in the river when all of a sudden he hears this noise. There behind him, way up the top of the hill, flying over the top of the hill, comes this team of horses pulling this huge wagon. And they're just racing down the hill. In fact, by the time the wagon gets to the river, the man who's driving the wagon, he makes no attempt to stop. He, the horses, the wagon that's filled with all these heavy barrels, they just go flying out into the ice and they race clear across the ice until they get safely to the other shore. Well, now suddenly the man who's down here on his hands and knees, his face begins to turn red because he realizes how silly and foolish he looks. Man, if the ice can support the horses and the wagons, there's no doubt it can hold me up. I was afraid of something I didn't need to be afraid of. The ice is so much more solid, so much more firm than what I realized. But... I needed somebody else to show me that. That's what Jesus does for us. When Jesus touches the leper and doesn't just heal him from a distance, when Jesus makes time to sit down at the well so he can visit, I mean just really visit with this woman from Samaria, the woman who's already been through five marriages and now she's involved in a sixth relationship and that's not going well either. Here's a lady who can't seem to do anything right. But Jesus doesn't hesitate to sit there and talk to her. He doesn't hesitate to ask her for a drink where he's going to drink from her cup. doesn't bother Jesus at all. When Jesus prays from the cross and he prays for the very people who just crucified him and he prays, Father, forgive them. When you see Jesus in every one of these settings, is there any doubt that God's grace is real, that God's grace is amazing? Is there any doubt that God truly is a friend of sinners? You see, it's Jesus who shows us again and again and again. He shows us why, with great confidence, we can trust God. It is safe to draw near to him. But notice something else that he describes about God. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, 
Now, why is that important to know? Why is it important to know that our God is not just our God? He is a father. And he's not just a father. He is a glorious father. Because for many people, the biggest disappointment in this life will come from the very people who should have cared the most. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's a famous psychiatrist from Switzerland, Time Magazine once put her on the list of the 100 most important, most influential thinkers of the 20th century. But throughout her life, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had this difficult relationship with her dad. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was one of three triplets, and she said throughout her entire life she could never, I mean, this moment, this memory was just always in her mind, this moment from her childhood. She said one day as a little girl, she was sitting on her daddy's lap, and the two of them were having a conversation. But what was strange to little Elizabeth was as she was sitting there, in the middle of the conversation, she realizes my daddy doesn't know who he's talking to. As, as a little girl sitting on her father's lap, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, I suddenly became profoundly aware that my daddy had no idea which one of the three triplets he was holding, which one of his three daughters he was talking to. And she says, I was devastated. Instead of feeling special to someone, feeling unique and important, like I've got my own place in the world, now she realizes if my own dad can't tell who I am, he can't tell me apart from my sisters, how can I expect myself to count in anybody else's eyes? And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, for the longest time, I felt lost, abandoned, and alone. Jesus understands that. You know, Jesus grew up in a family that didn't always appreciate him. Jesus grew up in a family that was less than perfect. You remember that day, Luke chapter 4? Jesus comes back to his hometown to preach. This should be a wonderful moment, but it's not. There in the middle of the sermon, things get really ugly. There in the middle of the sermon, the hometown folks are not liking what Jesus is having to say. And so instead of celebrating Jesus as some kind of hero, they begin to treat him like a heretic. And the Bible says they took Jesus by force and they brought him out of the synagogue and led him out of town and they brought him to the top of a hill there at the edge of a cliff, fully intending to throw him off and kill him. You ever notice as you're reading that scripture what's missing from it? What should be in that scripture and it wasn't? And the people took Jesus by force, the hometown folks, they took Jesus by force, led him out of town, brought him to the top of a hill. But fortunately, at the last second, all his brothers and sisters showed up and came to Jesus' defense, and Jesus' life was spared. But the Bible doesn't say that. Because when Jesus was in trouble, deep, deep trouble there in his own hometown, his family was nowhere to be found. You talk about feeling lost, abandoned, and alone. Jesus understands that heartache. So how did Jesus deal with that disappointment? He knew the truth of what we're talking about here. God isn't just our God. He's our Father. And he's a good Father. He is a glorious Father. He can do for us what our earthly families never could. Three different times in the public ministry of Jesus, in a very public fashion, God declared his love for Jesus in a loud voice so everybody could hear and know, I want you to know this is my son, whom I love, and with him I am very pleased. Well, how does God bring that affirmation to us? Look at what it says here. He said, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that so you can know what he's really like, so you can know him better. And know this deep down inside. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That word hope is, is key. 
And you need to appreciate when the Bible uses the word hope, it's so much different from the way we use the word hope. You know, I'm hoping when I go to my friend's house to eat tonight that his mother doesn't serve mushrooms. I don't like mushrooms. And sure enough, you get there that night and you discover the awful truth. She served mushrooms. So I'm hoping that my friend's mother doesn't notice me hiding those mushrooms in my napkin. Do you see how I'm using the word hope? It's just a wish. I hope it doesn't rain at the picnic. I hope my team wins the game tonight. I hope there's going to be some cherry pie left in the refrigerator when I get home. But that hope that we're talking about is something uncertain, unsettled, unclear. It's up in the air. Nobody knows for sure if it's actually going to happen. That hope is nothing more than a guess. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's talking about something definite, real, guaranteed. You can count on it to be true. And why can you count on it? Because of who God is. He is our glorious Father who can do things our earthly fathers cannot. He sees things. He knows things. He has powers that go way beyond what any earthly family could ever provide. Let me give you an example. In the book of Isaiah, the Bible says that God sees the end from the beginning meaning he knows all things, and he knows it all at once. He is not confined by space or time. He doesn't have those kind of limitations. So when God looks at history, he can see it all at one glance. Creation, the garden, the fall, Abraham, Israel, Jesus, the early church, your life today, the coming judgment, the age to come, he sees it all with one look. And it's the same way with your life and mine. He sees past, present, and future. He sees you as a fetus in your mother's womb. He sees you as an old man walking with a cane. He sees you one day standing at the side of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. And because he sees things that way, that means he views our life differently. We tend to define ourselves by the past. Hey, here's who I once was. And I'm still haunted by that past like a stain. It just kind of stays with me forever and just affects everything I do. It's like I never can get away from it. But when God defines us, he defines us from the future. He sees the end from the beginning. Here's who you can be. Here's who you will be one day. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. The Bible says, you were once darkness, but now because of the Lord, you are light. So live like that. Live like children of the light. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Meaning what? Meaning you look to the future and you see what God had in mind for you. He's calling you to something different. He's calling you to something better. So you look to the future and see that dream that God had for you. And right here, right now, begin to live out that identity and live with a sense of hope, biblical hope, confidence, a sense of certainty. That if God has this dream for you, he's going to make a way for that dream to come true. Always remember Sam Stone. He's one of my teachers at Cincinnati. And he told this story one day. He was a missionary he knew really well in Africa. The missionary's name was Dan Crawford. So one day Dan and some of his friends were trying to reach the people in this remote village way out there in the jungle. But they came to the stream that was impossible for them to get across. No bridges. The, the river was at a flood stage, river just swollen way over the banks. No safe way to get to the other side. So Dan Crawford and his friends just stopped and they began to pray and said, God, if you want us to reach the people of that village, we need you to provide a way. And all of a sudden, while they're praying, they heard a sound. A tall tree standing nearby all of a sudden just fell over, fell right over the water. And all of a sudden, they had a, I mean, a big, thick bridge to use. Now, some people would say that was a coincidence. I say it was an answer to prayer. Yeah, for years and years and years, the roots of that tree had been decaying. And sooner or later, one day, that tree was bound to fall. But the fact that it fell exactly at the moment they were praying, that's no accident. 
God wanted Dan Crawford and his friends to reach the, the, the people of that village. And so God provided a way for them to complete their mission. What does the Bible say? Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in your life and mine, he who began that good work will carry it on to completion. What he begins, he finishes. That's our hope. We have a glorious Father. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life and mine. And if we'll just put our trust in him, know this, he fully intends to carry out and fulfill that plan. Let's pray. God, we're here. We're here today because we want to worship you. We want to celebrate the great things that you have done for us. So, God, this morning, open the eyes of our heart. Let us see in a clear and convincing way how great you are and how good you are. And, God, be glorified in the praise that we offer to you. And we offer that praise in Jesus' name.